Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to the Corbett Report. I'm your host, as always, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, coming to you from the sunny climes of Western Japan here on this 20th day of October 2013. But as you will have noticed by now, this is not a regular episode of the podcast. This is another edition of the Questions for Corbett series. As I mentioned on New World Next Week last week, I currently have some family visiting from Canada, visiting the newborn son for the first time. So, uh, we are very busy with a lot of different things, as you can imagine, and so I am not quite able to fulfill all of my obligations here at the Corbett Report while the family is visiting. So for the next week, uh, well, things are going to be a little bit slower at CorbettReport.com, but I did want to get this questions for Corbett done because, again, the questions just keep piling up and up and up and up, and there's no way that I could possibly answer them all unless I did a daily edition of this questions for Corbett, which uh, I can't physically do. So... Um, if I don't get to your specific question, please don't take it personally. I, I do have to just make some decisions and uh, decide what to, to answer and what not to answer. As always, the best ways to get your questions in are through the contact form at CorbettReport.com and or by leaving a YouTube video with hashtag QFC in the title and or using hashtag QFC on Twitter to direct a tweet towards me. Those are the best ways. And in fact, uh, Twitter user Rahul Varshney has uh, come up with some good ways of getting in touch, including using something like SoundBoo and uh, SoundCloud, AudioBoo and SoundCloud, that should be, to record yourself asking the question and leave uh, a question that way. That would certainly be acceptable as well. So lots of different ways to get in touch. One way not to get in touch is through the um, personal messages in YouTube. I never, ever, ever check my personal messages in YouTube, so please don't send me anything through there. Um, at any rate, let's uh, let's get into this today, and we really do have a strict time limit of half an hour today because we're going to go see a Japanese soccer game today, so let's see how many of these questions we can get to. But before we get into the questions today, I want to actually do something completely different. I want to start off today with uh, not a question, but a comment of sorts. I want to also use this Questions for Corbett series to highlight positive positive things, positive changes that people have made in their lives and through the uh, the work and, and the information from CorbettReport.com, because at the end of the, the day, that is ultimately what this is about. This is not about me being some sort of guru that you ask your questions to. This is really, hopefully, about making positive changes in our lives and learning from others how to do so. So if you have an interesting story about a way that you've positively applied some of this information towards implementing your own solutions, I would love to hear about them. Please send that through the contact form, and we will try to highlight at least one such story in each episode of Questions for Corbett. And we're going to start off today with a comment from Tim that I got that I really enjoyed, so I wanted to share it with you. Tim writes... I wanted to let you know that I wiped my Dell laptop clean and loaded Ubuntu onto it. Man, what a great move that was. I went back and watched the episode about alternatives and technology and checked out Ubuntu and Prism Break and then jumped chip. I have been fed up with Windows for years with all the virus issues and strange hard drive activity. And after learning over the last five years what they actually have access to when you're running Windows, it's despicable. Not to mention my disdain for the eugenicist scumbag himself, Bill Gates. What a great feeling it is to be off that psycho software. I had many fears when getting ready to do this and was really concerned about certain pieces of hardware not working or needing special drivers, etc. Well, I basically had one minor hic hiccup with the, wireless cash with the wireless card, which I instantly found a cure on in Ubuntu forum. Everything else worked right off the bat without having to do anything. The layout is clean and easy to use. I would almost call it a cross between Windows and Mac, heavy on the Mac. 
The other really cool thing that I noticed was that my hard drive indicator, which seemed to be always be really busy before with Windows, constantly doing whatever Windows does, is now quiet and peaceful with a blip and flash every now and then. I think I've liberated my hard drive. All right, excellent comment. Thank you so much for sharing that experience, Tim. And I again, I hope that this will be something that we can all learn from as we start to transition off of the architecture that they've placed us on and towards a more free open source software and uh, hardware that hopefully we can use to transition into a completely different technological paradigm and one that is not controlled by the insiders and uh, eugenicists and uh, globalist connected uh, elite, uh, so-called would-be elite. All right, let's move straight into some questions. And we've got some, uh, well, we've got some uh, questions related to economics up first. So let's go to Hussein, who writes, can the Federal Reserve print as much money as they want? In case this is possible, why does the U.S. have a huge debt? Can they print money to pay their debt in U.S. dollars? Okay, excellent question. This is a very important question and one that I, I understand a lot of people have because it's not it's never ever made clear. They never really explain what's happening when they talk about the national debt in in the national news, the talking heads talking about the, the debt ceiling and all of this sort of thing. All of this is just assumed knowledge, but um, for myself personally, it took a long time before I ever bothered to look this up for myself, which was the only way I ever actually learned it. So, so let's get into this because uh, it is a good question. Can the Federal Reserve just print money till the cows can come home? Well, uh, in the end, yes, they can. They can create as much money as they want. But how then does the U.S. government go into debt? Well, the trick is that, of course, that the Treasury isn't the one that's printing the money. It's the Federal Reserve, the separately, the separate central bank. They're not, they're not the same. They're not uh, linked. They are, uh, they are separate. And the Federal Reserve is not beholden to any part of government, as Alan Greenspan told us um, not too long ago, and he should know, I suppose. So, uh, so th- there it is. That's the disconnect, and that's. It's done for this reason, supposedly, the official story is that, well, you don't want the Treasury just printing as much money as it needs to fulfill its debt obligations, because then you're just monetizing the debt, and it doesn't look good for international uh, investors, it doesn't look good for uh, for the optics, etc., if you're just monetizing the debt, um, basically, because then the government can print as much money as they want, and they will print as much money as they need in order to secure votes, etc., and then you have runaway hyperinflation, Blah, blah, blah. So that's the official story of how and why that works and why there's that disconnect between the Treasury and the Federal Reserve. And the Treasury administers most of its money through the Federal Reserve. They have an account at the Federal Reserve through which they um, disperse most of the funds that they uh, send out to outsiders. Etc. Etc. So it's an interesting system. There's some intricacies to it. I understand this, so I'm actually going to put together an, an episode coming up as we approach the hundredth anniversary of the uh, the Federal Reserve Act. I think we do need to get into more of the mechanics of how this works because it's all very important and it can be interesting um, just to know how money works and where it comes from. On a related question, we also had this in from Alf, who writes. Who is the federal government in debt to? I guess it is private pockets the system is leaking to. How else could this balance? Is there a chart that shows the other side of the debt? Okay, another excellent question that goes straight to the the heart of the issue that, again, is completely avoided in the mainstream talking head media. So uh, this is another important issue, and it's important to note that there are the Treasury issues two different types of securities. And, of course, the Treasury funds what it's doing by uh, issuing securities, issuing T-notes, bills, uh, treasuries, uh, that are then bought by people and uh, they pay off an interest on that after so many 
years or months or however long the uh, the, the length of that uh, treasury is for. So the standard uh, by which we judge the uh, the, the debt low the uh, the interest rates of the the federal government is the ten year treasury note. So in ten years you'll get X percent um, interest on your on your notes. So this is um, these are this is the way that the treasury funds its actions, and it, basically they just sell it on an open market in an auction, and whoever buys it buys it. The largest holder of treasuries is in fact the U.S. government itself. Uh, there are two types of treasuries: there are marketable securities, those that uh, they sell to the, the in the auctions to the outside world, and then ones that they issue to themselves to fund government programs. And the largest recipient of that is uh, is Social Security, which currently has 2.7 trillion dollars in uh, securities. So 2.7 trillion of that 16 trillion dollar debt that we're always talking about is in fact uh, just social security and other government programs make up another uh, two, two and a half trillion. So so something in the order of five trillion dollars of that is debt that is technically owed to the government itself. It's a bizarre system. Um, another uh, four or five trillion on top of that. Um, I'll get you the exact figures. In fact, I have a, a handy infographic that I'll, I'll link up here. According to this infographic, as of uh, March 2012, 5.1 trillion dollars was owed to other nations which buy U.S. Treasuries as a form of foreign foreign reserves. And uh, the largest holders of that are China and Japan, uh, with one point about one point three and one point one trillion dollars respectively. And then it drops off sharply from the to the number three spot on that list. And I'll link that list up so you can see exactly what foreign uh, reserve holdings there are in U.S. Treasuries. And uh, other than that, um, those are the those are the main holdings of uh, of U.S. debt, the U.S. government itself, and the foreign reserves. But let's not forget that the largest single creditor of the United States in the last couple of years has become the Federal Reserve, because yes, they are buying treasuries. Um, Directly, well, not directly from the treasury. Um, they are buying it on the open market, but um, but they are buying treasuries in the quantitative easing program now to the tune of forty billion dollars plus a month. So um, so they're adding to their balance books uh, a pace, and they now currently have on their books over two trillion dollars in securities. So over two trillion dollars of that debt is owed to the Federal Reserve. Interesting how this all works. So again, I think we do need to go into the mechanics of this in greater detail. So I will hopefully put together an episode or even a couple of episodes as we approach the 100th anniversary of the Federal Reserve Act so we can all understand this system a little bit better and how it really functions. Uh, let's get into a YouTube question. This one from Sam Murphy. And uh, well, let's, let's let him ask the question. Hi, James. Um, I just wanted to ask, what do you think about the rise of fascism in Greece, especially with the Golden Dawn party becoming the third most popular party? Um, it's been described as well-organized, which I assume, assume means that it's well-funded. Um, do you think they're getting funded perhaps for a full-out war to occur, or maybe perhaps to counter the rise in popularity of anarchism in Greece at the moment? Uh, it'd be great to hear your thoughts on this. All right, thank you for that question. Very good question, an important question, one that I thought about myself. Obviously, the historical parallels are there with a Germany that was going through economic crisis in the 1930s and the rise of the uh, the Nazi party, and now we have the economic crisis that's sweeping through Greece and uh, the Eurozone generally, and we see the rise of 
right-wing nationalist fascist party. So the historical parallels are definitely there. And I think it's an interesting thing to ponder. I certainly don't have any definitive answer about this. I think that it is probably not necessarily something that's been engineered so much as it's something that does arise um, out of the economic conditions. But it, certainly the effect is absolutely to counteract any nascent whether, it, well, anarchist tendencies um, that the Greek public might be working through at the moment. And I've talked a few times now on the podcast about the volos, the uh, the currency that has been um, uh, basically devised as a way of countering the problem of lack of euros floating around Greece and they, the local exchange currency that they're, they're um, playing with in volos that is truly starting to uh, to help uh, communities get through this this rough patch. It's an extremely exciting concept, and uh, it would be a very much a shame to see ideas like that being su- superseded by the the puppet show that's going on between the political factions that are fighting it out right now in Greece, and with the latest being that the uh, Golden Dawn party members who are actually in the Greek parliament have had their immunity lifted so they can actually be prosecuted while sitting in parliament. It's a, it's a crazy situation, and I think to a certain extent it probably is... Um, if not designed to, at least it is distracting from the real solutions that Greek, Greek, the Greek people are working out for themselves. So that is to the detriment of the Greeks uh, generally. Um, let's move on to Anointed Samurai, who writes, My city Nairobi has been attacked by a group called Al-Shabaab, apparently due to Kenya's forces being in Somalia. Just wanted to know what you thought with regards to this being linked to U.S. hegemony, geopolitics, and disinformation. What questions should Kenyans be asking so we do not go to war unnecessarily as Obama's lapdogs? A very important question, so thank you for that. Um, and good to see that there are listeners really literally all over the world to this program. Um, Al-Shabaab, yes, is just another one of these uh, groups that is being rolled out onto the stage right now to make its appearance along with all the other um, terrorist groups that are rolled out at, from time to time as needed, whether it be a Lashkari Taiba or a uh, LFIG or... Um, in Syria, we have the uh, the Al Nusra Front, or whatever it is, they'll roll it out. They'll say it's Al Qaeda affiliated, and it's the justification for going in and bombing a country to smithereens, or it's the good guys, as in the case in Sy- Syria, who are helping to liberate that country from Assad, or whatever the official propaganda is. So this is another one that's been rolled out uh, recently, and it is equally ridiculous when you start peeling back the layers of this un- propaganda onion, including um, the Sam Luthwaite, Samantha Luthwaite, who is uh, the the white widow, the one of the widows of the one of the seven seven bombers, the uh, alleged bombers of seven seven, who is now apparently running around North Africa with three children in tow and somehow evading all of the security agencies that are looking for her because uh, she's now an avowed terrorist going around participating in this mall raid and things like this. Uh, it just gets stupider and stupider. So. Unfortunately, yes, I think that this is very much related to um, not just necessarily U.S., but U.S., British, Israeli, you name it. Um, they've got their fingers in this pie, and uh, they all want a piece of that African puzzle. And I think that there's a lot of resources being invested in that right now. And just as China is uh, trying to go in and bribe countries into their uh, into their basket with, um, with infrastructure deals and the like, so the U.S. and their crony 
armies are, as always, going in with bombs and uh, going after threats that they themselves have created and fostered and funded and hyped up. So yes, I would be extremely cautious about this, and uh, I would resist in any way I could the, um, the becoming an Obama lapdog in the creation of AFRICOM, which is just, uh, again, just a few steps down the road, which is what I think they're ultimately seeking for. And again, I think we should do more work on that in the future on this podcast. Let's move on to Sharif, who writes a very important question. How are we to construct any new society given that approximately four of every 100 people are psychopaths? In another podcast, you review how society is inherently vulnerable to psychopaths who naturally rise to power by virtue of their psychopathic qualities. The new society is to be one without all these corrupt institutions, be they financial, educational, governmental, or military. But in such a society, there will be psychopaths who will do terrible things, and we will need to devise an institution to protect ourselves from them, which sounds like police slash military. Do you think it will be possible in a future new society to manage the psychopaths among us? Uh, Again, thank you so much for this question, Sharif. It is an extremely important one, and one that I think is one of the very, very major challenges in the transition into a free society, because I think it's in the transition that all of the problems lie. A free society would be wonderful, but getting there is extremely difficult to even contemplate. And there are those who will tell you that basically human nature will become different once we live in a free society and that psychopathy won't really exist or will only be some, you know, rare freak of nature. I'm not so confident in that. I'd like to believe that to be the case, but I haven't studied specifically epigenetics as it relates to psychopathy enough to be able to say where the science says that is right now. I certainly do believe that psychopathy is something that, like any other any other condition, can be... Um, can be placed in a context that aggravates it, that activates certain um, certain genetic tendencies that that fosters and creates that uh, tendency in in people, and so I think that there could be a, a context, a societal context that at least lowers the rate of uh, psychopathy in the population. Although, then again, I again I haven't studied the, uh, the the science behind that enough to to be able to say either way. So that's I think another ripe topic for conversation in the future on this program. Um, but long story short, no, I think there will always, I think there will probably always be that psycho- psychopathic element. But to my mind, that's exactly, exactly why we shouldn't be creating these institutions, these police and these military that are going to protect us from the psychopaths, because that is exactly where the psychopaths will go. They will assert their power. They will get into the positions of power in those institutions. That is exactly how the psychopaths function, the high-level, function, high-functioning psychopaths in our society. The uh, the Rockefellers or you name it are the ones that always go for where the power is and infest that and take it over and use it as a tool, which is exactly why we have to get rid of these overarching institutions, which are always used as a tool to ultimately repress the people. It is always a weapon that is ultimately used against the people themselves by the psychopaths. So, um, so I think we have to get rid of these overarching institutions rather than waiting for these institutions to save us, as if the police and the military have ever done anything to save us from the psychopaths in power. It's always the psychopaths that rise to the top of those institutions. Again, a lot more to say about that topic. So thank you so much for that question, Sharif. Uh, Let's move on to Corey. Uh, If global warming is a scam being foisted upon us, why would the global elite go to the trouble to use chemtrails to dim the skies to prevent global warming? If the global warming isn't the life-threatening emergency we've been led to believe, why bother having a covert operation to keep it from happening? Okay, very good question. But this question, I think, 
swallows hook, line, and sinker the assumption that chemtrails really are about dimming the globe and preventing global warming. This is the type of propaganda they're trying to seed us with right now so that when they finally announced, oh yeah, we're doing geoengineering, we've been doing it for a while, here are the programs, here's the the aerosol spraying we've been doing, and uh, it's all to prevent global warming. That's the, the propaganda narrative that they want to implant in the population so that when they reveal it to the population, everyone will go, oh, okay, it's all right, it's for our good anyway. Because as I've mentioned before, this is always, always the way propaganda is rolled out. First, they deny, deny, deny. That doesn't exist. You're crazy. Don't look up at the sky. Don't talk about this. You're wrong. Uh, You're just insane. And then eventually it'll flip like a switch and they'll go, yeah, of course it exists, but it's for the best. It's for our good. Why why are you complaining about this? That is always the way this propaganda is rolled out. And that's why they're implanting that idea right now. Oh, well, geoengineering would be in order to dim the globe so that global warming won't take over. I don't think that's ultimately what it's about. I mean, I think there are a lot of different uses for this technology, including being able to bounce uh, harp off the ionosphere more effectively, and um, uh, all of the the health effects and all of the uh, Monsanto patenting um, uh, crops that are resistant to the bariums and the salts and the other things that are uh, infested in these aerosols. So there's a lot of reasons behind this, um, and I don't think global warming is one of them. I think that's just a propaganda narrative they're throwing out. Uh, let's turn to Twitter. We had a tweet in from at Devil. Was Fast and Furious a gr- gift from the U.S. government to drug lords? Uh, strange there is no spillover on the border. Uh, well, I mean, ask someone on the border whether there's been spillover. I think that uh, the the fact that um, Mexico is basically a failed state at this point and is just uh, complete chaos and is being run by drug mafia does have its toll on certainly the border towns uh, against uh, with the U.S. So, I mean, ask someone in El Paso whether there's been some spillover. But uh, on to the point of the uh, whether this was the U.S. government's gift to the drug lords. Absolutely. Um, it certainly was. And again, the U.S. government um, turns out time and time again to be in bed and infested and um, in every layer of these these drug mafia, drug, drug cartels. Um, so we, there was a, a whistleblower from the Sinaloa cartel who came out to say that basically, yes, the uh, DEA was cutting deals with that cartel in order to uh, to make to cut out some of the other competition to the drug trade, etc. And that was covered by that is still being covered um, excellently by Bill Conroy of Narco News, who I've talked to a couple of times, and we have talked about this issue. We talked about Fast and Furious, so I will include a link to our Fast and Furious conversation in the show notes of this uh, Questions for Corbett, so you can go and watch that, where we talk a little bit more about this and some of the insider information about what was really happening there with Fast and Furious and the way that the DEA um, was basically infesting the the drug cartels. Surprise, surprise. Um, Let's turn to another YouTube question. This one in from YouTube user Dick Trump. James Dick Trump here. My question for you. First and foremost, thank you for the work that you've done with the 9-11 evidence presentation on YouTube. I think that you've been viral to the point of now Jesse Ventura quotes you verbatim and may launch a presidential candidacy based on your research. But what you don't do is make a conclusion. And I'm wondering if you might have a handful of conclusions that you could draw from the evidence that you have put together. Because I think anyone... 
could look at it, but no one's looked at it as closely as you have. So what do you think? Are there blanket statements like Maurice Greenberg was a double agent between the CIA and the Mossad or something that you could say with definitive proof or something that's definitively not true? You know, definitely wasn't George Bush or probably wasn't George Bush. Is there, are there places you could point us in the direction where you're leaning um, to give us a feeling of what really happened? Because uh, I think you've done a lot to expose the evidence. I think I think it's time we hear your theory. So I'd love to hear it. Thanks. All right. Thank you for the question. Um, I think you're exactly right. Of course, in my 9-11 conspiracy theory video, it didn't posit a conspiracy theory of any sort. It didn't posit any sort of theory, um, which is kind of the irony of the title, the pointing out the fact that the official conspiracy theory is a conspiracy theory and a ridiculous one at that. That was the point of that video. So it didn't offer anything definitive about what did or didn't occur on that day. But that's not to say that I haven't covered in a great degree of detail before what we can definitively say about 9-11, both what did occur and what did not occur. And we could make a checklist of various things. Um, we could talk about the, the, the insider trading that did occur, and that's been documented in bi um, business journals even. Uh, we can talk about the, the transactions that were being done through the computer systems. We can talk about the stand down that uh, the, uh, in the air defenses and the fact that uh, the 9-11 Commission was even going to bring criminal charges against people in the Pentagon for lying to the 9-11 Commission about the, the NORAD timeline. We can talk about, uh, again, there are many, 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 many definitive points we can make about 9-11. But rather than me just reiterating them all, I will direct you to my 9-11 work, specifically my work on the 9-11 money trail and my recent episodes on 9-11, uh, the 9-11 anniversary and the 9-11 suspects that we should be bringing forward uh, criminal charges against so that we can start the real criminal investigation. So um, that's what I'll say at this point. Again, there's uh, my 9-11 work has talked about this a lot in the past, so I hope you'll look into some of it um, in in uh, the archives of CorbettReport.com. Let's move on to the next question from Benjamin, who writes, do you think martial law in America is imminent, considering your long, prepara your long preparations of FEMA and DHS appear seem appear seem to be hotting up right now and telling by the tiptoe removal of civil and constitutional rights? Will it possibly culminate with the GRIDX2 exercise scheduled for November 11th through 14th, just like 9-11 and 7-7 have been mingled with exercises? Could it be that the currency collapse is scheduled just for that time, or is it all hype, fear-mongering, and bogus? Okay, excellent question, Benjamin. This is a question that I think everyone has when they first start getting into this information and realizing what's really going on behind the scenes, and I certainly had that when I first got into this as well. Um, and I, I think you'll find that reflected in some of my earlier work in this podcast, um, focusing on every exercise that came along. Oh, well, what if this one went live? Or uh, focusing on the FEMA camp uh, idea and things like that. It's not to say that this couldn't happen and it couldn't happen overnight. It certainly could. Could you imagine in the wake of the next large-scale terrorist event if a nuke or dirty nuke or whatever it is goes off in, in some major city in the United States? Can you imagine the results of that? And, uh, and you know, all bets would be off the table um, whether that would be start the, the actual martial law roundup which there have been preparations ongoing for years about, and I covered that in my um, video, U.S. Army Prepares to Invade U.S., which is my second most popular video, almost 2 million views. So, yes, I have definitely covered the, those preparations in the past, and they definitely do exist, and there definitely could be the possibility of, of that going live. But I think 
the more that I get into this, and I, I notice from other people as well, the more that they get into this and the more they study it, the less um, likely they are to see this happening around every single corner. And uh, again, grid X to exercise, etc., etc. One thing that I've learned over the years is there is no possible way to predict what exercises will be used as exercises and what exercises will go live as part of an event. And again, they could run thousands, thousands, millions of exercises that just go off as exercises, and it just takes the one that goes live that uh, becomes a 9-11 or what have you. So again, there's no possible way to predict it, and could it be that uh, that November 11th will be scheduled with the uh, economic collapse and gridex and all of this? It could certainly be. Am I betting the farm on that? Certainly not. Again, I don't have the crystal ball on this. So my philosophy is that we have to do as much as we can to prepare while we have this time to prepare. And that means implementing the real solutions that we constantly talk about on this podcast, including uh, getting onto the alternative local currencies, getting into the agorism, getting into um, uh, uh, open source uh, architecture, software, hardware, um, ideas, projects. We've covered all of these types of solutions in the past, and I think that they are absolutely what we should be concentrating on, more so than worrying about when the hammer is going to drop on martial law, because again, that's not something that we have any control over. And I think ultimately, if I was in charge of the New World Order and puppeteering all of this, it would be infinitely more effective for them to incrementally bring us into this, just step by step, generation by generation, as they have been doing for a long time. The big spectacular 9-11s, etc., tend to wake people up mighty fast and in mighty large numbers, as we have all seen in the last several years. So I think it would be in their interest not to go with the hot martial law scenario, just to bring it in a little bit at a time. And that is what they're doing. I mean, we are already in a stage of martial law when you look at the uh, the implementation of it in the United States specifically. Um, it's just it's not 100% open, declared FEMA camp type martial law. It's just more and more the police are becoming the military. So a lot more to be said there, and again, we'll cover it in the future in greater detail. Um, let's get to a couple more questions. We're running out of time, but one from Robert who writes, why is the Plain Gate affair worth focusing on? And I'm glad someone just simply asked this question because this, uh, for people who don't know, I've been covering the, the Plain Gate affair and the reality behind the Plain Gate affair for the last several weeks on the Eye Opener Report. And um, whatever my intentions with this series are, I have fallen far, far short of the mark, as I've noticed that this series has gotten absolutely no interest or attention from anyone, um, which is disappointing because this is something that uh, that I've been talking about with Sabelle behind the scenes for weeks now. We've been preparing this and trying to figure out the best way to roll this out and introduce this topic and these these characters and the ideas, because this story actually goes straight into the heart of Sibel Edmonds' story and the story of what she was dealing with in the FBI as a whistleblower, talking about these characters like Mark Grossman, who were involved with this nuclear espionage and passing secrets to foreign foreign operatives and all of this right in the heart of government that we have firsthand from a whistleblower from inside one of the uh, the bowels of the one of the intelligence agencies there that is coming out to say this at great personal risk to herself and no one even cares so uh, so the plain gate affair goes straight into the heart of that with these characters and the real story of how 
Valerie Plame's cover was not blown in 2003. It didn't come from Dick Armitage. It came from Mark Grossman in 2001, who blew the lid off of uh, uh, Brewster Jennings. That is the real scandal, and that is monstrous in and of itself. The ramifications of this are just huge. The fact that there is a nuclear espionage ring that is operating in the heart of the State Department that has these players who are still rotating in and around and involved with government in various ways. They are still there. They are still operating to this day. This is still going on and people just don't even care about it. So uh, I, that is my fault. What I have not clearly not found the way to express this properly to the public. So um, as always, I'll encourage anyone out there who understands, who sees the picture that I'm trying to paint here and can do a better job, please do so because this is an important story and I have no doubt that if you are able to do so, um, Sibel would be happy to host her, to, to link to that on her site and I would be happy to draw people's attention to it because it is a very important story. Um, that's what I'll say about that for, for now and uh, we are completely out of time so just one final question um, in from Kang who writes, uh, in your broadcast area where you make your vids, there is a red paddle thing with a little ball hanging on a string. Looks like a toy musical instrument hand drum. It is in. It has been in the same place forever, LOL. And I would love to know what it is, and sure lots of others would too. Yes, it's a little Japanese toy. Um, it makes a noise, and uh, I just thought it looked cool, and I uh, so I bought it at a shrine here. A number of years ago. I don't even... I don't even know how much. And in fact, uh, there's also another Japanese little thing there in the background, but maybe we could save that for another questions for Corbett. On that note, that's going to be it for today. Um, sorry, it's a lightning, lightning fast uh, tour. And once again, sorry, I can't get back to everyone who writes in and I can't answer every question that comes in. But I do appreciate your comments and questions and I do try to read everything that comes in. So please keep sending your contact uh, in through CorbettReport.com. Use hashtag QFC on YouTube, on Twitter to get your questions in that way. Use Audioboo or SoundCloud to record yourself asking a question. However you get your questions in, I will do my best to answer them to the best of my ability. Thank you as always for tuning in and please bear with me over the next week or two as I continue to have a much reduced level of uh, media coming out at CorbettReport.com but I'm looking forward to stepping that back up in early November. And also thank you of course to the people who've put in your DVD orders and I'm doing my best to burn them off and get them out but it is uh, it is going slowly so um, for anyone who's still waiting on a DVD order please hang in there. I will get them out in the next several days and I will send you an email once it has been shipped to you also, if you have a problem with your DVDs, if there's been an error, if your DVD doesn't play, just let me know. I'm happy to replace them. Just um, let, uh, send me an email to let me know that your DVD is malfunctioning. At any rate, that's going to do it. Thank you again. CorbettReport.com. See you again next week. And one more thing. Sorry, James here once again. I am just about to publish this Questions for Corbett, but it is currently Monday the 21st of October, which is the third Monday of the month. So I am definitely not going to be able to get to film literature and the New World Order this month. So if you have already read this month's uh, selection, which is Rudyard Kipling's Kim, then you're already ahead of the game. And if you haven't read it yet, well, you ha still have time to prepare as we get ready to go over it in next month's film literature in the
the New World Order coming up in November. So sorry about that, guys. I do hope that things will be uh, going back to normal later this month towards the beginning of November, and uh, we will get uh, everything back up and running as normal. And I plan at this point to have a podcast up for this coming week, but uh, we will see how it goes, and we'll just leave it at that. So thank you once again for tuning in. I'm looking forward to talking to you again real soon.